away we go. Well, hi everybody, welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm here with John McMurray and Nitin Govill. And Nitin is going to be largely a silent partner for one of the few times in recorded history. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm being cheeky at the moment, I'm not quite sure. I think it's because I just had a massage, although it was not with full disburdenment. <laughs> really, we're here to talk to John. Uh, John, it's wonderful to see you, and I love that love those attractive green shoes you're wearing. Thank you very much. Tell us the story of those shoes. I can tell you the story of these shoes. They they were uh, uh, 9.98, <laughs> and um, sorry, that must be the accession number. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the dollar value of them. And uh, they were actually distributed in a, uh, a, a store, a, a, a chain store that was in middle class, lower middle class malls on peripherals of cities um, that actually has gone out of business uh, during the, 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 the downturn. These shoes were actually made um, by, um, they're called Starberries, and they were made by the basketball player, um, uh, Red Bradbury, who decided to create a line of shoes um, that um, was not expensive. inner city kids wouldn't be killing each other over, um, like the Nikes do. And so I uh, decided to create these uh, uh, affordable shoes. Um, so they've got court shoes and, and, and uh, the tennis shoes and other lines of shoes. Um, and uh, now they still probably exploited, you know, third world workers to, to make them. I don't think that that but the ethics of that. But did you find your aggressive tendencies towards the tenured faculty at the Department of Communication at the <laughs> University of California, San Diego, lessened as a consequence of the almost free availability I think, of, <laughs> yeah, of cheap Vietnamese labor? Uh, perhaps, yeah. No, I, I think it, to some extent it did, and it's, it's also, of course, we were furloughed, so it was a, in some ways a requirement to uh, look for <laughs> cheap cheap shoes to, in order to stay uh, Thank you very viable in this expensive housing market that is California. Sure, sure. Thank you. Would you get on the exhaust? All things should be as they are. <laughs> you can smell the turmeric on it. <laughs> Actually, I did, I, must admit, I didn't take a shower after this thing, so I have this wonderful oil all over my not all over my body, but a large part of it, <laughs> and even in my hair, so I'm maybe a little bit repulsive. But in any event, John, um, more importantly than that, tell us what you're working on now. One of the things I know you're working on is building a massive books in your office, which I saw yesterday. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's an archival uh, project, a uh, historical project. Uh, hence, hence all the uh, the books and files in my office. Uh, but I'm I'm looking at um, uh, the emergence of cable television in the United States, and I'm looking at it in, in different ways than it's been conceptualized, historicized by others. And um, <laughs> just some of John's tumultuous public <laughs> erupting <laughs> into unruly readership mode. That's right. That's right. So. Um, in a lot of ways, cable television has been thought of as, and the American model of multi-channel television, as see, the, 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 the reigning commercial system for producing as many diversified television shows as possible, reaching the most diversified audiences. Um, and it was done so through this uh, private market of cable television, right? Um, and it was only the, um, uh, the uh, certain kinds of uh, regulations that prohibited cable television from emerging earlier. A lot of the regulations that actually thought that uh, free over-the-air broadcasting that reached uh, all of the people in the community was important. Uh, and therefore, this new form of television that required individual payments um, was something that could inhibit that kind of universal service model of, of broadcasting. Um, so, uh, but most of the literature really describes that as an impediment to reaching this newfound commercial form um, that, through the rigors of the market, was able to uh, uh, properly cater to the diversified communities that exist in society rather than the mass model of broadcast television. Well, my research uh, interrogates the history of cable prior to when this happened with MTV and, and ESPN and these other networks that. Um, we're able to turn uh, cable into a, a very profitable commercial model. And to look at it, its actually 40-year history prior to the first federal regulations in 1984, which really created cable as a, uh, a private system unencumbered by public service um, uh, 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 regulations in any way. We can talk about how we're living that now in the Internet age as cables become the primary provider for Internet service. 
But what I found in these early years is actually uh, quite a contested battle over um, uh, cable television's emergence, and especially this idea that um, that television should be something that individuals can pay for to get something extra. Um, now, while we look at um, the cable television now as something that's brought, say, channels for queer subjects, channels for women, uh, uh, channels for young people as a progressive act, these um, early um, uh, movements to push for a paid television service actually came from uh, uh, very much uh, empowered um, white um, uh, uh, professionals both in, in um, Congress and elsewhere that were concerned that um, television had actually catered to a lowest common denominator that no longer um, uh, required the voice of the, the very um, knowledgeable knowledge class and felt that with cable television uh, and, and pay te pay, pay, payment forms there'd be a resurgence of certain kinds of cultural forms like symphonic music, like academic lectures, like uh, Broadway plays, some of these forms of, quote, legitimate culture would suddenly have a larger presence on, on television. If I can interrupt for one second. Sure. Uh, I remember when I first arrived in the United States and got cable, sometime after the period you're describing, mm -hmm. but 1993, so before the big 1996 act, when Bravo, which is now largely if you like, exploitation television, in those days was orchestral music and jazz. And jazz was uh, its signature item in its self-promotions. It would run promotions where the voiceover would list X, Y, and Z, and then say, and jazz! And then you'd see a black man playing in Carnegie Hall. Mm -hmm. And this was to show that it was uniquely American, this was great American art form, yeah. uh, and also that it was doing something different. And I also discovered only after I... I'd arrived that A and D, which was a staple, in a sense, unusual cable station nowadays, in that it's, it's quite broad in its dramatic offerings, but actually stood for arts and entertainment, and had been generated in the early days, I think, of the, the Reagan reforms as something that was going to be precisely this kind of elevated cultural force. Yeah. Yeah. Right? No, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and, and and many of the early cable channels had that uh, remit, and many of them weren't successful because movies and sports, actually, um, Hollywood movies and sports became what cable was all about, or free music videos, right? Um, but it's interesting you talk about jazz because this emergence of this um, class of regulators that detested broadcasting really emerged from a, um, a, uh, uh, a cultural distaste for the jazz that became very popular in radio in the 1930s and 40s. Oh, is that so? Yeah, and, and this was, this was the, uh, one of the most popular genres, um, and it was something that was thought to um, uh, to uh, lower the cultural standards of, of uh, U.S. citizens. So the forms of culture that these regulators wanted um, was actually more classical music and not only just listening to different kinds of classical music, but properly listening to symphonic music in its totality and etc. Right? And, and in those days, NBC, I think it was, had the Mantovani... Uh, sorry, the... Uh, Toscanini. Toscanini. Yes, that's orchestra. right. I don't know why that's I always... Right. Reduced poor old Arturo to Mantovani, <laughs> but anyone is right. you know billion and one yeah. ball of strings. But yeah, Arturo Toscanini was the house conductor, and yes. they were massively popular and successful concerts. That's right. Live yeah, radio. they sure were, and they also had a um, music appreciation uh, component to that that taught listeners how to properly listen to Toscanini and others. Now, it's this form of appreciating classical music in a particular way that was the concern of these regulators that was actually going off. So the, the NBC was uh, uh, cut back on Toscanini, a lot of the other networks stopped a lot of their classical music forms, and so you had um, uh, uh, those in the 1950s who were saying, what's happened to our culture here now that broadcasting has given up on this high cultural remit? We need to find new ways of bringing it back. Thank you very so, much. Oh, very nice. Thank you. Ketchup, mustard, or mayonnaise? Uh, ketchup, please. Mustard, mustard. Thank you. And so is this... Yeah. Turn it around. Get around your Very nice. The away damn spot. That's right, that's right. I'll take mine right out. And so it was um, It was these regulators, those, that, for example, were affiliated with the Americans for Democratic Action, which was 
of former New Deal um, uh, Democrats who are actually now less concerned about unequal access to employment and more concerned about this homogenization of culture turn to forms like cable television and individual payments as ways to be able to create more highbrow programming. So this is really where this idea that individual payments for television could actually create certain cultural forms came from. Now there was strong, there was strong resistance to that actually from the very communities that um, uh, we might say now have certain channels like BET or, or, or um, the Black Entertainment Television. Black Entertainment Television. That's right. Um, it was it was um, communities of color. It was uh, working class communities. It was um, low income veterans. It was women's groups who um, strongly opposed this emergence of pay television, cable television, because it was going to only be available to those that could afford to have it, and it was also only affordable and available to those that lived in more densely urban areas. So um, you also had a lot of uh, farming communities, rural organizations that were strongly opposing this because what was happening was that now these urban centers could actually have a multiplicity of, of, of uh, channels coming from uh, 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 network broadcasters. Um, uh, many of these small towns actually could not receive any television at all. Um, so there was a, a conflicks between these Thank groups you, as well. When you, when, you're, oh, you. when you get a chance, or your colleague does, can I get another glass of this Malbec? Sure. Thank you. Is everyone else okay on drugs? Fine. Thank you. The, um, Toby likes to do these interviews because he gets to ask the questions and quickly drinks his glasses of wine, which suddenly he's done with one <laughs> while I've had two sips. And you've not and, had and, your burger. And, and, and Nitin, and we haven't had our burger, so. No, it's pretty I, tough. I'm so starting to understand the format. It's okay. Here. I'm going to interrupt now with a okay. very long statement of questions. So okay. drink up, drink okay. up, okay. and be merry. When we. A lot of listeners are outside the United States. Yeah. So about 50% and they're in 50 different countries. They'll, they'll, in many cases, be familiar with ESPN and, and MTV, but they may not be quite so familiar with cable as it exists in the United States, although many more so than would have been the case a decade ago, had there been podcasts a decade ago. And I guess some context is worth having here in that this was in some ways initially a technology that was generated in order to allow places that were at some distance or in very intense urban spaces access to television signals. Yeah? Yeah, right. Where broadcast in the conventional sense was not operating as effectively as it might have. Um, thank you very much, sir. And uh, quickly became not quickly, but eventually have become what the Spanish call thematic channels, yeah. genre-based television we might describe it as today. And so when people in other parts of the world see a program like, eat, John, you've got to have some of that burger oh, yes. while my long question takes forth. Okay, thank you. People in other countries who might see The Sopranos or The Wire or, if they have real taste, Dexter, may be interested to learn that in this country we see these without commercial interruption, as the saying goes, and that they are funded via a high-tier menu, if you like, thank you, old man, of what we could now call premium stations on cable, and that these things are in part funded by black men and brown men paying large amounts of money to watch boxing on these networks. And the networks that produce these high quality dramas that are so beloved all over the world and make for the golden age of TV drama, HBO and Showtime, between them run boxing, possibly the most corrupt sport in the world. Indeed. And furthermore, that when we say cable and broadcast and satellite in the United States, and these are very complex terms, because all television virtually that's on cable that comes from broadcasting is beamed to us via satellites. And when we talk in these ways, we're talking about a mixture. And in the United States, we always know what we mean somehow, but outside it must be more complicated. But when we say, I've got satellite package, it means I've bought from a satellite provider and I have a dish. When we say cable, it means 
I've got a cable service that runs into my building. But when we talk about cable stations, they are coming to us via either satellite or cable, but in many cases have been beamed across the country on satellites. And when we talk about broadcast, we're not watching it on through broadcast systems by and large, we're watching it through satellite systems beamed either onto cable packages or satellite packages. So just to give people some context and allow you to make a small inroad into your book. Yeah, no, thank you, thank you very much. Um, um, <laughs> it, it's um, uh, an important point is, is the business model for cable really became viable once uh, satellites were able to deliver these thematic channels or these premium channels on a pay service. Um, uh, cable uh, companies made lots of money early by starting them, uh, running them for five years and then selling them because tax breaks actually allowed uh, the owners of these systems to uh, reap lots of benefits, but there was no long-term strategy. It was only until there was a system for nationally distributing these premium channels and getting uh, viewers to pay special prices for these extra channels that they couldn't get from the broadcast channels that were actually coming over the cable. Because you're right, Toby, uh, most cable systems were actually valuable for for, um, for viewers is because they were able to capture um, uh, channels from different uh, big city markets, right? So early on you had something like WGN, which is a big city Chicago station, it was able then to go up on a satellite and reach other channels. It's, it's a broadcast network. Yes, it's a broadcast and, network. And, and the right. model is the 50,000 watt station in radio that were able to broadcast, or Radio Luxembourg uh, in the UK, right. which was a, a private station that was legal because all the work done on it that was produced was done in London, but it beamed its signal to Luxembourg and then from Luxembourg via a high-power transmitter to the UK, right. and hence in the days before private radio was legal, it was legit, unlike all the other private radio stations you would listen to. So the WGN model... Uh, which is a, a broadcast Chicago station that became available really all over the United States, not everywhere, many places, was precisely this idea. And of course, um, it made a long, rather like Turner Broadcasting in some ways, where, uh, because Turner, now part of Time Warner, owned a baseball team, that baseball team, because it was covered on his networks, became America's team. That's right. Similarly, WGN, which covered Chicago baseball, managed to spread the market for watching Chicago baseball much wider. Right. So places like Iowa, which didn't have professional basket, uh, baseball teams, but had always been interested in Chicago baseball, right. became even more interested because this was your chance to see a quasi-local team shown to you. Yeah, that's right. That, that, that's absolutely right. And Worked for the Bulls, but not the Cubs. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, the, Cubs, the Cubs became a national right. uh, team because of this, and so did the Atlanta Braves, because this is where in Georgia where, where Ted Turner's station is. So, so in terms of thinking about uh, uh, scales and and sports, certainly that these uh, super stations, as they were called, um, uh, created that popularity. Now, but but the the issue with with a business model is that um, for those that, you now again, um, early on, um, a lot of uh, regulators thought that these premium channels would have highbrow programming. But you're right, they, they, they produce sports and second-tier Hollywood movies, right? People wanted to watch this, and they were willing to pay for them. But what cable was able to do then is that it required you to pay for the basic package, plus an additional um, extensive amount um, even back then, it was five, six, seven dollars a month for access to Hollywood movies and some sports. Now, um, that was—if uh, you think about the amount of money that uh, people were paying for clear broadcast signals, perhaps some super stations, and a pay TV service like HBO—it was probably about one third to one half of actually what the BBC was collecting from viewers um, off of their. Um, uh, license fee that they paid annually. And so if you think about what the um, the BBC, for example, provided for that amount of money in terms of a global news service, in terms of a number of different channels um, with a different public remit, you're seeing that actually um, um, on the backs of, like you were saying, Toby, 
um, HBO and, and Showtime would create strategies where if they provide just enough programming targeted toward these different ethnic and racial communities, they would get people to require to pay these large amounts of money per month just to get that, even if they didn't watch the other program. So it had a strategy really of trying to use diversity to get lots of, of, of uh, viewers to pay the subscriber fees. Yeah. But when you look at the totality of what's being offered for the amount of money that's being offered, it's actually very little. Um, one of the things... High rotation. It's like top 40 radio. Yeah. yeah. It's like old-fashioned top 40 yeah. radio. Yeah. yeah. Where there's high rotation of a very small number of programs. Mm -hmm. uh, there are uh, very few transaction costs because you don't really have announcers. Right. You don't have to hire anybody full-time to be on air. That's or to, right. Or to provide on-air services in any sense. That's production right. services. That's right. Yeah. And what the uh, 1984 um, Cable Act did was to provide cable with lots of decision-making power to tier the way in which they wanted to tier. Now, a tier is the way that you charge for certain packages of programming. The basic package gives you your local channels plus a number of other um, channels. A medium tier might add certain channels like MTV, ESPN, other popular shows. Then higher tier would give you more specialized channels such as the tennis channel, the golf channel, etc. And then you had the premium channels, um, like and HBO and Showtime. Like HBO and Showtime, that's right. And um, and the regulations in '84 said this should be a federal matter. It should not give the states and local governments any um, uh, measure of power to charge fees, etc. Except very minimal ones. And um, it also said that uh, cable television could not be treated like a broadcaster with public service obligations, nor as a telephone company that had universal um, requirements to reach everyone, right? So, so cable was able to develop in a very privatized manner, unlike other, other um, unlike broadcasting. Yeah. Now, some of the ramifications of that um, are starting to be seen now because um, uh, there's a, a movement actually to allow viewers to buy just the channels they want to buy, okay? So that you don't have to buy these packages, you can buy just the channels that you want to buy, right? And But part of the, the um, context for that, or part of the way in which that it, um, it, um, envisions viewers is that um, they're consumers who know what they want and can buy just what they want, and that television should be something that caters to just those particular interests of individual viewers. And we've got a lot of progressive organizations that are actually pushing for this, uh, what's called a la carte pricing, where you just buy what you want. Okay, the Consumers Union, which has been a big progressive organization fighting for uh, viewer rights, etc. La Raza is uh, it's pushing for this, right? Uh, La Raza isn't, and I'll tell you why. Oh, okay. Right. Um, and um, so uh, um, what's happening is this, this consumer-based activism that's based on individuals buying just what they want to buy um, is actually being opposed by organizations like La Raza, other civil rights organizations that are, that are defending cable channels like black entertainment television. Channels um, that um, like um, CTV that, that, that uh, are, are communicating to uh, young Lat uh, Latinos in the United States. Uh, channels like um, uh, Oxygen and Lifetime that cater to women. These cable companies and the civil rights organizations are saying, look, in an a la carte environment, market environment, these channels would never have developed because what they need is a, a sense of cross-subsidization that occurs in packaging to give them some sort of visibility and viability to viewers that otherwise wouldn't necessarily choose something like that, right? So what you have in these communities is a discourse that's saying we need to think about um, viewership in terms of the totality of, of viewing options, to think about cross-subsidization to ensure that we have a diversity of viewerships, and that not just our personal interests drive what we end up watching, but to have a variety of different things so we can come upon them and actually expand our own notions of subjectivity. Right? And, and la raza, I should say, is a Spanish for like, it means, it can mean race, but it can also mean the people. And it's especially used here in the United States to refer to people of Mexican American or Chicano origin. And there are social movements that or orchestrate their activities around this mm -hmm. term. The other thing that's very important to say here is that the way cable works is both through direct payments by consumers 
you know, a specific choice for a premium station. There is a la carte decision making when it comes to these premium stations right. like HBO and Showtime. And there is then this section of section, uh, this selection of tiers one can make. But it doesn't only operate that way because there are capitation fees that function between this is unbelievably wonky, and we'll, yeah. by now there'll be four and a half women and a dog listening. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> capitation fees that operate between cable providers, the people that own the pipes or, the, or right. that own the satellite, and companies. And these right. vary depending on the success of the station. And in addition to that, stations may carry advertising in many cases as a further revenue source. So, for example, in this country, the capitation fees average out. The, the station that's currently showing on the television behind you, John, in this bar, ESPN, it's probably, it is by far the most important property. I mean, yes. by far. Yeah. Of any uh, basic or second tier cable station. I mean, the average capitation fee is 20 cents. It's $4.30 wow. per consumer. Right. Um, right? I mean, that's how that's extreme right. it is. And then the next one is half that, $2.20. And then you go down to a dollar, and that's the top three. Wow. And then everybody else is, you know, 60 cents, 80 cents, wow. 15 cents, one cent. That's how extraordinary ESPN's significance is for this. And if you enacted, for any reason, an a la carte pricing system whereby you and I could happily say we're no longer subsidizing Fox News Channel, then lots of things would drop out. And Disney, which owns ESPN, would essentially be able to say, well, we've subsidized hundreds of these bloody things. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. And, and, um, and the thing about pricing is that the 84 Act and the 96 Act um, took um, uh, elected officials out of decision making in terms of what these packages would cost. And folks like Disney, who owned ESPN, but also the Disney Channel and ABC Broadcast Network and a number of others, are able to leverage their conglomerate power to raise these cable rates to rates that are, are very, very high uh, for, for a lot of subscribers and make them unaffordable, right? Um, but it's not up to the, to the subscriber or elected officials or anybody to decide on what kind of packages could be affordable and inclusive and so forth. So so um, that's that's very much uh, an issue. Now, another thing that it's doing is it's, it's, um, it's putting... Uh, uh, pressure on the broadcast networks, uh, ABC, NBC, CBS. Can we get some, pardon me interrupting, John, sure. can we get some more of the potato, sweet potato fries? Potato fries, yes. Yeah, 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 That's okay. Um, so now the networks are actually asking for compensation fees um, from the cable providers. And um, actually, um, about 10 years ago, CBS contemplated uh, leaving its system of over-the-air broadcast distribution to become actually a cable network itself because it thought it could make more money that way. Um, and what all this does is it moves conceptions of television away from mechanisms that provide um, public officials, elected officials, and other publics to um, participate in any other way besides their wallet in terms of how these things happen. Right? Yeah. Right, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Because there are, once you become, in terms of free speech, a telephone call, mm -hmm. which is what cable stations are, they're a telephone call, and that means we don't have censorship, uh, you also lose public interest obligations mm -hmm. to provide a service that is comprehensive in the case of the broadcast network, or in any sense accountable via the, the democratic process you've mm -hmm. described. Mm -hmm. Now, John, can I ask you about a phenomenon that is not common amongst, for example, students at UC Riverside who are working class, but is common amongst students at UC Santa Barbara who are not, which is cord cutting. What's that? Cord cutting. Uh, Jennifer Holt, one of our colleagues in the University of California system, was telling me the other day that her students at Santa Barbara don't have cable, their parents don't have cable, no one's interested, it's all through the internet. She came to lecture to my class of 100 students, none of whom had even heard of this. 
and they're lucky if there's cable in their family. Right. So she said, how many of you guys watch television on the internet? I guess that's the main way you do it, you know, two hands for that. And uh, how many people here, uh, you know, watch HBO and Showtime? Of course, no hand. I mean, no, you know, this is just a fantasy of a very particular class fraction. Yeah. Nevertheless, the cord-cutting phenomenon is one that we read about a great deal in the trade press, and it's about people who no longer want a landline and no longer want cable or satellite television, don't own a TV set perhaps. Right. How significant is that? Is it, as I'm suggesting, very vanguardist and white and upper middle class yeah. and young? And how much of it is prescient of the future? I think it, it, yeah. it, it, it's, it's an, an excellent, excellent parallel to the early formation of, of debates over cable television yeah. in the 50s because it was an elite, privileged elite, that was pushing for particular forms of television and getting them that were based on um, affordability and access from a particular class. Um, it's very significant now because, indeed, um, teaching at the University of California, San Diego, most of my students get their television through the Internet. Um, and through a number of these sites that provide um, uh, uh, programming that way. Um, and the issues are that um, what cable um, uh, systems are trying to do is to reproduce the pay per model, the subscription model that they've been able to capitalize on through the internet. And so that you have to actually subscribe to cable in order to get some of their channels. Um, um, and they're trying to push for that, but there's some push back oh, against that. Yeah, yeah. What they want to do is to be able to uh, say that we'll provide all of this stuff online, but the only way that you'll be able to access this is through a subscription package to our cable system. And, and Time Warner has a smart move on that, where you know, on your iPad, you can watch basic cable that you've subscribed to. That's right. Yeah. Um, but again, they're trying to create sort of this gate gatekeeping mechanisms. Now what's disturbing a bit about Thanks. some of the students that feel like they can get anything they want to watch online is that they typically are watching these play, these these uh, programs that Hulu provides, for example. You know, Hulu is an on-site um, uh, um, audiovisual uh, uh, um, access site that has, has created arrangements with the, ma with the major broadcast networks, ABC, NBC, CBS. And is providing on a on a um, on a um, delayed basis most of the most popular shows that are on these network show, the television programs, and um, but you're required to watch the commercials that come on before them. Right now, this is a model that um, is trying to get away from. Um, the digital video recorders that allow you to skip commercials with the fast-forward button if you're watching a cable on right. home. Uh, here, you're required to actually sit through the commercials because they're able to do, throw, do so through the new technologies, right? So Same the, with on-demand now. Same with on-demand, on, that's on right. On-demand uh, digital cable right. now requires you to sit through not all the original commercials, right. it is actually a briefer version, right. I think. But you have to sit through it, right? You can't fast forward. So what these new technologies are providing, these online technologies, yeah. unlike yeah. cable, uh, is this ability to make people watch these commercials. And that's the model you're getting. And the problem with that is, too, is it's starting to spread to other sites that, in a former time, used to provide all kinds of different videos for non-commercial display, such as YouTube. Now, if you go onto YouTube, you'll notice that many, many, um, uh, much of the audiovisual content, including user-generated, that's not sponsored by Big, will have an advertiser in front of it, right? And um, so you're getting um, a system where you can avoid the commercial message, even if it's a non-commercial entity that's someone in their household that wants to shoot their dog doing a funny trick. <laughs> uh, they, they now can make, um, which is a very, very small amount, like one cent per X number of hits. Um, so they make a very small amount. And never a great trick. And, ne and never a great trick. Never. You're requiring you know, viewers to sit through Man the advertising. That's it. That's Duck right. skateboards. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And um, so, so you're getting kind of this uh, commercialization of... Um, what some believe would be a more democratic way of, of circulating um, these audiovisual texts. I wanted to ask if we could change tack and inquire of both you and Nitin about your experiences as a cable viewer. 
So, John, uh, you grew up in various places, but uh, one of which was a mountain region, yes. one of which was not. But then you came to Cable mm -hmm. as a teenager. So, I'm interested in the moment in. in for you, John, of migrating in different, to different parts okay. of the country, and what cable meant in big city places for yeah. you versus smaller places. Could I ask okay. you about that? Sure, sure. Um, so um, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, in a middle class, lower middle class neighborhood. And um, I, I was in um, uh, high school when cable television started to become more widely available. And I actually went to a high school that was primarily middle class, upper middle class students and upper class students. Um, it was a public high school, but it was in a wealthy neighborhood. We were annexed in a portion of town that was not as, 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 as wealthy. What in, a, in LA we call BHA, which is Beverly Hills adjacent. Yeah, okay. So we were in a Beverly Hills adjacent, which is the Cherry Creek adjacent uh, in the Denver, Colorado context. But there actually is a Beverly Hills adjacent school district. Okay, okay, interesting. Yeah. So, so what had happened is that the cable companies thought it less profitable to cable my neighborhood than it did to cable these more expensive, these more wealthy neighborhoods. So I did not have cable. So the kids at school all talked about it and you They didn't. all were talking about MTV. Because oh, so when we were younger they were all watching the MTV videos. I had to go over to my then girlfriend's house to watch who lived in one of this these is a family show. This upper is a middle family class show. <laughs> <laughs> to watch cable channels. So, 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 yeah, so, yeah no, sure, sure, sure. So, uh, so I, I certainly felt um, um, uh, left out of what was happening with what the younger people were watching. Now, um, I, I've since migrated to different places, and, and, and my current location in terms of thinking about cable television is that now I have two young children, and most of the television we watch in the house actually comes from uh, cable channels that do not have commercials, but that actually show um, children's programming. So Nickelodeon has a channel called Nick Jr. It's been rebranded from Noggin for a number of reasons. Um, actually shows commercial-free television program. And Disney uh, Jr. actually has commercial-free television programming. And they're both available on demand in interesting ways. Now, these programs um, are not bad for kids. They, they seem to engage with different questions about diversity and, and, and um, citizenship. They have different types of, of young children represented in various ways, though most of them are, are anthropomorphized through um, animals and fish and other things like that. <laughs> but it's been very uh, actually good for us. Now, the, the thing is, is what they're trying to do is to get you acclimated to their brand so that you then convert to the regular Nickelodeon that has commercials, and then to MTV that has commercials, and then to VH1, etc. Or on the Disney side, they get you to become a Disney fiend so that you go to their online sites and so forth and, and are able to then get exposed to the commercials there. Now, we happen to be a household that's um, had the particular forms of knowledge and cultural capital to understand that we don't want our kids to migrate to those sites. But we actually do enjoy the fact that we get these non-commercial programs that we can watch uh, with our children together, uh, in a sense. So it's, it's actually changed my relationship, and it's why we continue to get cable television and not Netflix or some other source of way to get the kind of programs you want to watch. Um, at the same time, I still very much um, enjoy watching live programming, especially news coverage, and how these news channels like CNN, Fox News, and um, uh, other uh, programs on Current, um, which is a new cable uh, network that was created um, uh, partially through uh, Al, Al Gore in order to create an alternative or progressive liberal um, uh, uh, channel. Um, I enjoy watching these uh, shows to see how, um, for a national audience, these political issues are being debated. So it's for those two reasons, uh, non-commercial programs for kids and national uh, uh, news channels that are the centers of deliberating our political discourse is why I actually do subscribe to that. And Nitin, yeah. you came to the United States at 15. 
came to DC, was cable part of life, or was it, or then, even without cable, it would have been a much more expansive universe of television than you'd had in Britain? It certainly was. I regaled your listeners, also known as Four and a Half Women and the Swedish Guy with the Dog, <laughs> the other day with my childhood story, so I won't bore your listeners with that again. I will say that we were the last household on our block and perhaps our community to get cable. But when we did get it, my, my father discovered the Cinemax After Dark package, which I enjoyed very much. It was called Cinemax After Dark, or Cinemax Up All Night, and I was, <laughs> in fact, up all night. This, this is a, this is a subgenre, a kinky subgenre of cable television that, that sort of pioneered the um, heterosexual sex scene with the flaccid penis. And I was up all night enjoying Sylvia Crystal, the various iterations of the Emmanuel series. So that was my... So softcore porn... Absolutely. Uh, ...is very available, was very available on a lot of channels. Right. Cinemax was a reasonably expensive film-oriented premium channel. Film and broadly construed. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. But uh, one of the things about... Uh, cable listeners who outside the US is that it is it does elude censorship uh, and so the censorship that Nitten's talking about which is the lamented absence of the erect penis is purely about consumer profiling it's not about the state it's that people want to watch very soft core porn and we'll give it to them but part of that too, though, is that these cable systems, um, uh, because they provide other services besides the softcore porn, are concerned about um, um, viewers' um, backlash against the kind of programs that are coming over. So the reason that they're softcore porn is not necessarily because the majority of people want to watch softcore, not hardcore porn. It's because they're limited to showing softcore porn in order not to alienate the other customers that they have. Yeah. So there are commercial uh, imperatives here that actually, uh, uh, Nitin, I'm quite certain that if you got opportunity as a young man to watch the harder cord pornography, you might choose that over the black of penis soft cord pornography. Um, but, but today, of course, but you make your own porn <laughs> on I should have grown up in the Mile High City. <laughs> So, so even the, the kind of commercial imperatives that, that find cable systems needing to package um, and, and optimize subscriptions um, uh, are a sensorial regime. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. yes but that is about market censorship rather than state censorship. And even though That's right. the lines between those are complicated to draw, it's worth pointing that out to listeners. Yes because it's not immediately apparent to them. And I found with my students that out of 100 students, not one understands censorship regimes in the United States and understands why it is they can see these things on a cable station, not right. on a broadcast station. Right, right, right. Right? And uh, explain to them that this is because when you're watching a cable station, you're engaging in a telephone call, whereas when you watch a broadcast television station, you're not. It's right. not always easy, conceptual. Yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> and I will say, just on the other side of the spectrum, uh, we're, uh, we want to see as much stuff as possible on television. But there are large sections of the United States that do not. Um, and it may be against their religious sensibilities, their moral sensibilities. Um, and the, the issue here is that these communities don't have a, a democratic process through which to actually challenge the kind of images that they're seeing on cable television that they're paying for. So you actually have right-wing organizations like the uh, Parent Television Council that's very concerned about the kind of explicit images that come through cable. They're watching and their children are there and so forth. And they um, do not like the fact that they have to buy all of these channels that have the smut as well as the um, uh, as well as the um, uh, uh, family dramas that they would rather be watching. That there's actually no system through which they can actually deliberate this outside of market mechanisms. So they have to actually either protest 
cable systems or do some sort of advertiser boycott. There's no mechanism to do that, as there was with broadcast television, where there actually was an accountability there to different sectors of the community, right? So what we're facing here in some ways, too, is that in this privatized cable model, there's really a few mechanisms either for hardcore uh, um, uh, pornography fans to get that through their cable, as well as um, religious conservatives who do not uh, want the kind of stuff that's coming over their right. basic yeah. packages. So if you're a working class hardcore fan, you're actually not going to get it very easily, because hardcore is easy to get if you are wealthy on cable. Or not wealthy, right. I mean, not even wealthy. But mm-hmm. Right. If oh, you have a fair amount of disposable income. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And just along the, the class lines is, some would argue that, well, you can get pornography anywhere on the internet now, hardcore and soft, softcore, right? So why not do that? Well, I lived in a neighborhood in Chicago before coming here to San Diego that was a densely populated neighborhood, mainly of Latino um, Americans. And the housing costs were very expensive. These, uh, these housing units, condominiums, apartments, that were housing families of six in two, three-bedroom apartments, there was no space in which to enjoy um, the kind of, um, and if you could afford to have a high-speed internet service and a computer, there was no space within these units to actually um, consume hardcore pornography. So in my neighborhood, there were actually a lot of peep show um, um, uh, outlets um, on the main street of my, my street. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, and, 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 and well, you put, primarily... It's like Nickelodeon. Like Nickelodeon, you put in money, and you can watch the videos there. So there's also all of these issues of space and affordability as well as high-speed internet access, etc., for accessing these kind of um, viewing pleasures. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's fascinating. And then jumping ahead a bit, so, all right, you, your dad gets this Cinemax after dark. Skinemax, we used to call it. Skinemax. <laughs> Package. But now today, like John, you're a young father in the sense of having a young family. What does this universe look like to you now? It's interesting. It's driven almost completely by the DVR the digital video recorder that allows us to record shows ahead of time. And we have, uh, we have, John, John should probably talk a little bit about the differences between Dish Networks and Time Warner and all the different kinds of uh, options that are available. We went to the, the satellite option just because it had the South Asia package, which means that my daughter Anya, who's six, who loves television, like we all do, consumes enormous amounts of television. Can't get some of the shows that her friends get, which is leading to all sorts of bullying and other problems. No, it's not really leading to bullying, but you know, she's not part of the same habitus. Um, uh, but I just... Yeah, I mean, John, maybe you could... Yeah, maybe this you is, this is a very yeah, interesting yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. often, in cities in the United States, we have a choice between, say, a cable provider and a satellite provider, but we don't have choices within them. Right, right, right. So, part part of the issue is um, has to do with infrastructure capacities. Now, when direct satellite broadcasting emerged in the 1980s, and direct broadcast satellite is where individual homes could put up a satellite dish to get uh, television services. Um, there was a limited uh, capacity, and this is going to decrease our, our our listenership when I use the word trunk space. But there was a limited trunk there space. There goes Scandinavia. <laughs> Scandinavia. The dog has just lifted its legs and said, "Bugger that!" <laughs> there was a limited trunk the space. The elephant demographic, though, is really no, turning it's in definitely now. on the yeah. rise. The limited trunk space on satellites, because satellites were hovering 22,000 miles above the Earth. And they had to beam signals to um, nationally or internationally. And there was a limited amount of space because they could not carry every local television station across the United States, right? There'd be way too many channels to be able to do that so that they have all of those available for specific communities across the United States. So cable television 
by, by, by difference is a landline and it could, could then provide the, the local uh, broadcast television channels as well as all of these thematic uh, channels that are available on a more national basis. Because the satellite channels could not fit all of these local channels, they devised a strategy to create more national and particularly international packages. Um, as a way to differentiate themselves from cable channels that could provide the local broadcast channels in addition to these. So that's one reason why they've used that as a, as a strategy for differentiation. But as, as you know, Nitsin, these packages are very expensive, right? Um, and so um, they're not available to many people. One reason why the um, MTV Desi channel, for example, which was a pay service for that was focusing on the uh, the uh, South Asian diaspora in the United States, um, was never took off because it required very large payments. Right. So I imagine you're paying a lot of money for the South Asian package you get on your Dish Network or satellite network, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I can get my cricket, but my daughter can't get her PBS Sprout. So that now, explains. Hang on, that is right. I'm going to follow up on this. What does your cricket package get you? My cricket package. Are you on Dish? No. So my cricket package gets me uh, uh, Willow, which is which mm. is the general one, right. which is sort of an aggregator of different feeds. Uh, it gets me uh, Neo Cricket, and it gets me one more. I don't even know what it's called, but Z. Z used to have a cricket package on my old cable network that doesn't have it anymore. But mainly I'm watching um, mainly watching Willow, like you do. I think you have Willow. I have Willow online. Yeah. You have Willow you online. couldn't get it in Mexico that was when the issue I was going there. there. Yeah. Uh, so even though I was subscribed, I wasn't Cricket bats able... are made out of Willow. Everybody. I wasn't able to gain access to the YouTube Willow feed right. from Mexico. Interesting. Despite Interesting. being fully subscribed, fully yeah. paid up. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that, that's, you know, one way... The same goes for some BBC programs, right? Unless you're actually a resident that you have um, an internet connection that is within the national borders of the... Uh, you can't of, use IK. You can't use that. This yeah. is very controversial because there are lots of expats who, have, who pay the license fee, point A. And point B, and I've raised this latter point with the BBC without success, it's actually a complete fucking myth that the license fee pays for the BBC. It doesn't. The license fee goes into consolidated revenue in the Treasury, and then the Treasury decides what the BBC gets. Now, normally it's a one-on-one -on -one correspondence, but it doesn't go directly to the BBC at all. Yeah. Yeah. So I've made the claim that because I pay taxes in Britain, and I'm a British national, I should have access to iPlay. BBC lies and says, you don't pay a license fee, so bugger off. Other expats say, excuse me, I do pay a license fee, and I can't watch iPlay. This brings up uh, the big issue about access and online uh, media. Right. Um, what's increasingly happening is that you have private entities deciding on accessibility. For example, recently there's been a lot of debate about um, network neutrality. Now, network neutrality is a term that's being used um, to describe the internet as a space where um, whoever participates in delivering information over the internet gets that uh, information delivered at the same pace and speed as anybody else. Um, but what's happened is, is that um, Big players like um, the um, phone companies, cable companies, and Google are just, just uh, are defining themselves the kind of rules that should participate in this. Right. For example, right. Verizon and Google recently came up with a um, a, a, a way to uh, get rid of network neutrality through iPhone use. Um, and yes, Google, which used to love network neutrality, yes. within a week decided that it hated Change, it. Changed their, their opinion, right? Because they thought that they might get more traffic to their Google search sites and their advertising model if um, um, uh, mobile phone users were able to have 
more services from Verizon and their blue chip um, uh, uh, customers that were primarily um, Hollywood and uh, television uh, service providers, ESPN, etc., where they could charge them more money. So um, we're really seeing a diminution of the kinds of ways in which uh, citizens can participate in the decision making about these questions of access. So, John, we've got about five minutes left. Tell us what the payoff is in terms of what you'd like to see and how it might be brought about in the cable landscape. Well, um, the cable landscape is, is transforming into the online landscape. And the big issue there is in what ways uh, can um, citizens participate in decision-making that uh, impacts the ways in which they can access internet services, etc. And um, the problem is, is that we've moved from, in terms of media and access, a broadcast model that actually was invested in, in principles of universal service and principles of having deliberative discussions over commonalities and differences and allowing ways in which citizens, either through elected officials or through direct um, uh, uh, means of testifying <coughs> to have their voices heard. <coughs> We're now in a situation where that has been uh, diminished extensively that um, cable television is no longer required to be beholden to anything except um, uh, subscribers and its uh, contractual relationships with uh, the big uh, uh, media providers. And spaces like Google as well um, have contractual relations with, with these big media providers and could decide what kind of things pop up in front of viewers. Now what pops up in front of viewers are advertisements based on the amount of, of money that advertisers decide to pay for these things, right? One can imagine that if there were a broader remit for deciding what kind of messages come before a viewer, that it wouldn't just be advertisements. It would be something else. For example, if you were um, investigating, say, breast implants, you would not only get an advertisement from a breast implant provider, you would get some sort of a reference to the problems of breast implants. Perhaps you would get uh, something about um, the trouble with women needing to have surgical uh, procedures in order to feel like they're good uh, and acceptable people in society. You know, a host of different kinds of things, things that would come that before you. But in our climate, um, a privatized climate through cable and internet service, there's no mechanisms, uh, regulatory mechanisms, in which to do that. So here's my question, John. I'm going to out you as a socialist. Okay. Because I know you are one. Can you foresee a world in which complete fucking religious nutcases and fascists like the Parents Television Council and rational, reasonable redistributors of income and culture like ourselves, socialists, could actually make common cause in a classic Yankee way over this question? Yeah. I think um, the Parents Television Council has actually... There, there was a rule with cable television that once 70% um, of, of people had cable television, that then there could be a discussion about federal oversight in terms of the kinds of things that came through television. And the Parent Television Council supported, or I should say threatened, to push for that um, if the cable uh, uh, companies did not respond to their interests. So there is a legislative record and there is a legislative history for considering cable television as an entity that should have some sort of public accountability outside of just selling subscriptions to viewers. And I think that might be a way in which um, both Colin calls as you describe. No, and when you yeah. talk about issues to do with open access to the internet and the problems associated with that, the National Rifle Association, the NRA, 
has made common cause with the left over such matters, over the idea of a, a universal carriage model and a cross-subsidy model yeah. that, tram, that traverses platforms and regions. Right? Yeah. So yeah. these things can happen. Unlikely bedfellows, as it were. Yeah. And I think one way to get there is to be cautious on both the um, extreme right or in terms of some of these liberal left organizations, progressive organizations, in falling down on this idea that <clears throat> the best way to meet needs is through amplifying and facilitating consumer choice, individual choice, because markets are not something that caters to individuals. They're complex entities that de depend on government regulations and depend on relationships between big corporate players. There is no there is no market that exists in such a way. And I think we need to be cautious both on both sides to describe uh, television viewing and access to information as something that is a consumer choice in a market. Because that, that simply doesn't exist. So we can move our discussion away from that to thinking about what are the ways in which we want to include citizen participation in these decision-making. John McMurray, thank you very much. That's a fantastic peroration. Your book you're working on sounds wonderful. And I think having a cultural political economy take on cable, satellite, television provision will be a wonderful addition to our knowledge of how meaning is made and how culture functions here in the United States. <laughs> thanks, Toby, and thanks for the turkey burger.